You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 9. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 22. Hebrews 9, 15 through 22. In our high school yearbook, there was a place every year for seniors to write a little blurb, and it was a section called The Last Will and Testament. I'm not sure how a tradition like that got started. I don't know if maybe that's normal for yearbooks, I guess. I'm not sure. Uh, It's somewhat comical, I think, the idea that you're going to ask 18-year-olds to leave a last will and testament. At age 18, people don't own much of any value. I was thinking about what did I own at 18? What was the most valuable things I had at 18? I had a pretty uh, admirable, impressive collection of Star Wars figures. I had a pretty big music album collection, CDs. I still like CDs more than the digital versions. And I know I had some decent percussion equipment, some drums, which are currently stored in an undisclosed location. But if I were to die at that point in my life, that, that basically, those were my most valuable things. That's what I would have left, that's what I have left behind. But that's not much, there's not much material value there. And I suppose maybe that's the point with the, with the yearbook. Uh, 18-year-olds don't have a lot of material goods, but I suppose what they do have is they have these valuable memories, and that's what they're, that's what they're leaving behind. That's kind of what the purpose of that section of the yearbook was for. But, but in a will, in your last will and tes- testament, you, you designate your most valuable belongings, valuable belongings to, to heirs, to those who will inherit those things. And, and one of the things we're going to be looking at this morning is concept of a will and an inheritance. Let's look at Hebrews 9, 15 through 22. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, or he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come under your word this morning, we 
Would you reveal to us even more clearly, perhaps, than ever before, uh, the significance of blood? Specifically, the blood of the incarnate Son of God spilt for us and how that changes and transforms everything in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a perfectly uh, balanced three-point sermon five days ago going through verses 15 through 28 of Hebrews 9. And then on Thursday, they, that got destroyed and broke into a two-part sermon. So I guess I've just been hanging out with Sam too long. So this morning, if it seems like the sermon starts halfway through this morning, it's because it kind of does. But just so you know, there's a part two coming, and it won't be two hours this morning, I hope. So uh, we're, we're going to focus on verse 15, and... Uh, uh, which is kind of where the rest of these verses come out of and, and point back to. And then uh, we'll look at verses 16 through, through 22 after that this morning. If you look at verse 15, we see very clearly that Christ mediates a new covenant. In, in verse 15, the authorized, he, he, what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's summarizing what he has started to say all the way back in chapter Seven, which is that Jesus is this, this mediator of this new covenant uh, because of his new priesthood. Uh, many have recognized that one of the ways to summarize the book of Hebrews is to say, uh, or it's just the sort of simple, succinct message, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And in, in these middle chapters of Hebrews here are, are the pinnacle of that, that argument that really begins all the way back in, in Hebrews 1. Uh, we've seen at the beginning of chapter 9 that Jesus opens up a better worship, makes possible better worship for us. It's better worship because Jesus is a better high priest. He is a better high priest because he mediates a better covenant it's a better covenant because it's enacted on better promises, and because it has better promises, we have a better hope. So Jesus is better, and all that is connected to this new covenant that he has inaugurated, this new formal agreement that establishes and supports our relationship with God. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant but what's the effect of that? What does that lead to? What's the outcome of Jesus inaugurating this new covenant and mediating this new covenant? Look at verse 15 again. The effect or the outcome of that is that those who are called may receive an eternal inheritance. That those who are called would receive an eternal inheritance. Two things to notice there. First of all, who receives this inheritance? Who receives it? It's, it's not unclear. Those who are called receive the inheritance. I'm not going to go on in detail, but what we've been looking at, especially even just one week ago in Ephesians chapter 1, I just want to make this note, this message is all over the Bible. Who receives inheritances from God? Is it 
the good ones? Is it the moral ones? The faithful ones? The strong ones? Is it the spiritual ones or the intellectual ones? No, it's, it's those who are called. Just as, as Peter writes in, in 1 Peter 1, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. This can be, this can be hard for us to accept, but it's, it's not hard to see in the text. Who receives the promised eternal inheritance in, if, in Hebrews 9, 15? Those who are called receive it. That was for a second. What is that? So that's who receives the eternal or who, who receives the inheritance. Second, what is the inheritance? We're going to spend a little bit more time here because it affects what comes after. What is this inheritance? There's a lot of places we could go in, in Scripture, we don't, but we're, we're, we're just going to keep it in the book of Hebrews for the sake of simplicity. This is not just an eternal inheritance. This is the eternal inheritance. This is the eternal inheritance that stretches back at least all the way to Abraham. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 quick. One of the ways that the Bible depicts this inheritance is is describing it in conjunction with a city. Look at this in Hebrews 11. This, is, this will become more clear. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8. So this in, eternal inheritance stretches back to Abraham. In Hebrews 11:8, we read, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So now we have both an inheritance and heirs. For he was looking forward to what? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham was called to go from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan to receive an inheritance, and included in the inheritance or connected to that inheritance is a city built by God. We also know from Genesis that Abraham was not only promised this inheritance, but he was also promised descendants. This has already been alluded to up in uh, verse 9, that there's heirs with Abraham. But if you continue looking at verse 11 of Hebrews 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants. So God promised Abraham an inheritance, which included a city, and God promised Abraham descendants or heirs who could also inherit the blessings of this, of this inheritance. So now here's the question. Did, did Abraham and his descendants inherit this inheritance? Did Abraham and his descendants inherit the inheritance? No, they didn't. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Look at verse, look or jump to verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them, what? A city. So Abraham traveled to Canaan to receive an inheritance. He was looking for, or looking forward to a city built by God, we see in verse 10. But Abraham and his descendants, who he was also promised, they died not having received what was promised, verse 13. But they died in faith, and it says, verse 16, that they desire a better country. They desire a better country than Canaan. Specifically, they desire a heavenly country. And in this heavenly country, they finally receive the city prepared for them by God. So here's, here's the big question to ask connected to this, because we're looking at Hebrews 11, which is sometimes called the Hall of Faith, which is a long list of, of mostly Abraham's descendants. But is this heavenly inheritance mainly for Abraham's physical descendants, or is it mainly for his spiritual descendants? It might sound confusing, but the Bible makes us differentiate between these two different groups. Is, is this inheritance mainly for his physical descendants or his spiritual descendants? So you don't have to turn there. Just listen closely. Here's just one place the Bible makes this distinction. In Romans 9, 6, and 7, we read, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who belong to Israel are descended, or no, sorry, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And then it says, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. What a confusing statement. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So in other words, Abraham has physical descendants that are not his true offspring. Or we might also say Abraham has offspring that are not his physical, biological descendants. And so we might distinguish these two different groups of people as his physical descendants and his spiritual descendants. So coming back to the question, again, is this heavenly inheritance we're looking at, that we started looking at in chapter 9, is this inheritance primarily for his physical descendants or his spiritual descendants? Look at, jump down in, verse, in Hebrews 11 to verse 39. After describing a list of Abraham's physical descendants who shared his faith, the author of Hebrew writes, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what is promised, since God had provided something better for us. Us, that is, the, the, the new covenant audience he's writing for, the author of Hebrews is writing to, here. Not just Abraham's physical descendants. God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So in this whole discussion, the author is ultimately concerned with, with us, the, with new covenant believers who have come to God in light of the work of Jesus Christ. 
So before we get back on track in chapter 9, jump to Hebrews 13 and look at verse 14. Hebrews 13, 14. And here the author of Hebrews is still addressing us, the new, or he's still addressing new covenant believers. And he writes, for here we have no lasting city. Here the city comes up again. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So apparently the author of Hebrews is under the impression that we are seeking Abraham's inheritance, a city to come, built and prepared by God. As you're turning back to Hebrews 9, stop at Hebrews 12. Go back to he- look at Hebrews 12, 22. Addressing, again, the same audience. But you, New Covenant believers, but you have come to Mount Zion, which is to be distinguished from Mount Sinai, right? Mount Sinai, where the, the law was given in the Old Testament in Exodus. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to, the, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. 20, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The mediator of a new covenant. If you have come to Christ who is the mediator of the new covenant, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to Abraham's inheritance, which is the better country that he and his spiritual descendants desired, a heavenly country which has a city prepared and built by God. It's not an accident that at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, we read that John sees in his vision, he says, he says I saw uh, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's not an accident that we end the Bible in the presence of God with a city coming down from heaven as we, after we've been expecting an inheritance for Abraham and for all of his spiritual descendants after that. So back to Hebrews 9, verse 15. Hebrews 9, 15. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, who came down from heaven, who lived, who died on the cross for sin, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, and now as, as a heavenly high priest is mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, enacted on better promises, offering a better hope with the effect that those who are called may receive the, pro- may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And this inheritance This is the inheritance that stretches back to the promises made to Abraham, which includes a lasting city, which includes a a heavenly country that's better than Canaan, that's even better than Eden. Even We're not going to have time to go back and how it's even better than Eden. But this is a better place where in Revelation it's described as where the dwelling place of God is with man. Does that sound like a nice inheritance? Does that sound good? A city. This this is an ancient inheritance. This is a heavenly inheritance. 
I like Aberdeen. Aberdeen's a nice place to live. It's a lot to be thankful for here, but can you imagine a city built by God? A city built by God himself. A city that has all kinds of features that we don't have time to go into right now, but it's a, it's a city of glory. It's a city of, of righteousness. It's a city of rest. It's a city of reward. It's, it's a city where there's no temple because the Lord God Almighty is its temple. This, this is a desirable city. Aberdeen is nice. We have storybook land. We have the Brown County Fair this week. I hear we're getting a Dunn Brothers. Aberdeen's a nice place to live, but the new Jerusalem is so much better. The main feature of the new Jerusalem is the Lord of glory. This is a city you want to dwell in. This is an inheritance of which you want to be an heir. And in verse 15, it's described as an eternal inheritance. To which we might might, might respond, sure, okay, I'm interested. That sounds good. But is there any proof? Is there any proof? Maybe this is all just sort of nice religious language, just sort of flowery, creative language. Is there any proof that this is, this is real? How, do I, how can I know I'm an heir? How can I know that I'm an heir to this inheritance with Abraham? I'm not even a physical descendant of Abraham. How can I know that I'm an heir to this inheritance? That's, that, answering that question is going to be basically what we spend the rest of our time with this morning. How can I know I'm an heir to this inheritance? Look at the end of verse 15. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Since a death has occurred. Anyone who tries to receive this inheritance through the first covenant will be disappointed. Uh, in the context of this passage, we know that the first covenant he's referring to is, is not actually the first covenant in the Bible, but the first covenant is this, the Sinai covenant, the covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai after he rescued them miraculously from Egypt. So it's first and then it comes before the new covenant. We might also call it, it's also referred to as the law, right? This is what we read about in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But no one, inheritance, no one, no one inherits the promises to Abraham, right? God promised Abraham these promises before that Sinai covenant. Abraham, he made those promises. Then Abraham got descendants. Those descendants multiply. They ended up in Egypt. They ended up getting rescued from Egypt. They end up at Mount Sinai. That's where they're given the law. But no one inheritance, no one inherits Abraham's inheritance through the law. Why not? Well, look back up at verse 9. Look back up at verse 9 in chapter 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But Deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of of reformation. So the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they could cleanse one on the outside, but they could not cleanse us on the inside. They could not cleanse our consciences. They could not cleanse our our hearts. Or you could jump to Hebrews 10.4 in chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This is why we need a new covenant. This is why a new covenant was absolutely necessary. Nobody inherited Abraham's promises through the first covenant, through the Sinai 
covenant. And this is why we read in verse 13 of chapter 8, now we're kind of jumping around a lot here, but this is all kind of together in the same section. This is why we read in Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. So we're back to Hebrews 9.15. It says that a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So how can you know that you are an heir to this inheritance with Abraham. How can you know? You can know, if you want to just put it very succinctly, it's because a death has occurred. And, and then to drive this point home, the author of Hebrews is going to point to three aspects of death. He's going to point to legal aspects of death, to sacrificial aspects of death, and to personal aspects of the death. This morning we're going to look at some of the legal aspects in verses 15 through 22, and then next time we'll look at the sacrificial and personal aspects of death in verses 23 through 28. But let's, let's focus for the rest of our time on some of the legal aspects of death that he points to in verses 16 through 22. He gives us a legal illustration, he gives us a legal connection, and a legal confirmation. Still get to sneak three points in there, okay? Legal illustration, legal connection, and legal confirmation. Look at, look at Hebrews 9, verse 16. For where a will is involved, he illustrates what he's talking about here. This is, this is an illustration. For where a will is involved, a last will and testament, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force, as, the, as long as the one who made it is alive. Uh, there's, there's actually a lot we could consider here, but just the main point of what he's getting at here is that there are legal ramifications connected with death. There are legal ramifications that are connected with death. And the author of Hebrews seems to be illustrating this. He's, he's kind of tapping into a play on words here by, by pointing to a will, by pointing to uh, a last will and testament. The author has been discussing, he's been discussing inheritances. He's been discussing heirs in the preceding chapters. He's been discussing covenants in the preceding chapters. And now as he shifts his focus to aspects of death, he brings up the concept of a last will and testament. And in a will, what you do is you designate your most valuable belongings to your, or to heirs, to your heirs or to, to whomever you will. But it only takes effect, it's only activated upon death. That's how wills work, right? The death of the person who made the will must be proven. It must be established. You need a death certificate. Some of the wealthiest people in the world have cut their heirs out of their wills. There's always lots of drama about that, and I'd, I was just looking up some of the wealthiest people who have cut their heirs out of their wills. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, George Lucas, Kevin O'Leary. There's a whole long list of, of, of very wealthy people who have, who have cut uh, their, their uh, physical descendants out of their wills. There's lots of reasons they claim for this. They want their children to make it on their own. Uh, they, wanna, they don't want there to be legal battles, which happen anyway. 
uh, in the wake of their death. Uh, but in a fallen world, there's, there's also this reality. There's also this reality that people, you, you don't want to create the incentive for your descendants to desire your death. Uh, maybe you've heard the tongue-in-cheek advice, you don't want to be worth more dead than you are alive uh, to anybody, to any human being. You don't want to be worth more dead than, than alive. Death has legal ramifications, uh, and a will is a legal document, and it requires death in order to be activated. So, so what's the connection with covenant then? What's, what's the connection with, with the will and then this new covenant that Jesus mediates? Look at verse 18, right? There's, that's where we read, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without Blood. So what's the connection here? What, what do wills and covenants have in common? Well, they have at least two things in common. They have legal components in common, and then they have death in common. Uh, it's clear that wills are legal documents. Uh, how do covenants have legal components? Well, it's, it's helpful to answer the question, what, what is the purpose of law? What's, what's the purpose of law? Uh, we, could, we could look at definitions, but just w- one reason we might give for the purpose of law, law regulates public agreements. As, as people in a community come into contact with another and they come to agreements with one another, law is, is what uh, that assists them in, in doing this. And then that holds them accountable to what they have agreed to. So law regulates public agreements, and a covenant could be characterized as a public agreement. What is a, a covenant? Covenants, uh, as, as, we, as we look back and, and we understand from ancient Near Eastern practices, covenants often, to, to make something somewhat complicated, more generalized and, and, and simple, uh, were, were something where you'd have like a greater king and he would come and make an agreement with a lesser king. Or it might be a greater king and coming to make an agreement with a, uh, with a lesser kingdom. And, uh, but you, th- this would be called a covenant. Uh, and, and their agreement would be, a, this would be a public, uh, public agreement that they would, they would, they would come to between, between two different kingdoms. And they would have public penalties for violating the terms of the agreement. So both wills and covenants have, 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 this, have this legal component or legal ramifications to them. The second thing they have in common, though, is, is death. They both have death in common. Now, it's obvious what role death plays in a will, right? Once again, you know, the death is necessary to activate the will. But what role does death play in a covenant? Well, the penalty for violating one of those ancient covenants was often... Death. Two parties, they would swear an oath together. They would swear an oath to each uphold their end of the covenant. Typically, the greater king would be promising you know, protection for this lesser king or this lesser kingdom. The lesser kingdom would be promising some sort of allegiance or uh, likely it came with some kind of monetary support for the greater king. Um, and in this covenant, they would, uh, they would come together and there would be an oath. Uh, and there would even be an oath ceremony. There'd be a formal ceremony that would kind of uh, establish this formally. 
And we, we actually have record of, of, of one of these oath ceremonies in the Bible. It's a little bit different than the ones that we read about in ancient Near Eastern literature. Uh, but Abraham himself took part in one of these uh, covenant oath swearing ceremonies. We read about in Genesis 15 where God, Abraham make, comes into a, he makes, this is when God, he makes his covenant with God. And God tells Abraham to, to collect a heifer and a goat and a ram. And he tells Abraham to cut them in half and to lay each half over against the other in Genesis 15. And then in, in a covenant oath ceremony, what would happen is the two parties would walk in between these two dead carcasses, which symbolize the penalties for breaking the covenant uh, quite graphically. Death is going to happen. Blood is going to be shed if you break this covenant. So as, as uh, O. Palmer Robertson, the theologian, puts it, 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 the covenant basically establishes this relationship. It establishes a bond in blood is what a covenant is. A bond in blood, which just clearly has the, uh, a connection with death. So you see the role death is playing here. First of all, there's, there's animal death that's involved in inaugurating a covenant. Uh, and then there, uh, death is a part of the penalties which accompany the, uh, the, the, the stipulations of, of the covenant. So death plays an important role in a will. If you have a will, your death will play an important role in that. And death plays an important role in a covenant. And, and we're dealing with the concepts of legal ramifications and, and death, which are symbolized in, in blood. So in verse 18, it says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. But, but, the, but the first covenant, the author of Hebrews, it refers to here, again, is not the, not the covenant with Abraham. It's the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai between God and the people of Israel, between God and Abraham's physical descendants. And the, and the author is, is well, the main, the, the main text we would go to for that would be Exodus 24 that, that Corey read earlier. Exodus 24 is where that sort of confirma- the confirmation of that, that, that covenant was, was made. So this leads to a legal confirmation in verses 19 through 22. Look at verses 19 through 22. When every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the cal- of calves and goats and the- with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book, or the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we have some familiar elements here. We have legal elements. We have the law in verse 19. We have a covenant mentioned in verse 20. And then we have death and blood mentioned in all four verses. So, so what's happening here? Uh, so to put it simply, the people are entering into covenant with God. Just like Abraham entered into covenant with God, the people are entering into covenant with God, and it is being ratified in blood. God's commitment to them is that he will be their God, he will be their protector, he will provide for them, he will bless them, and he has already done so by grace, by rescuing them out of Egypt. That's his responsibility and the people's responsibility, their commitment, we could summarize as saying that their commitment is to obey his law, their commitment is to be wholly devoted to him and to have no other gods besides him. But why all the blood? 
Can't they just make this promise? Does it have to be so gruesome? The book is sprinkled with blood. The people are sprinkled with blood. The tent is sprinkled with blood. The vessels for worship are sprinkled with blood. Verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is sprinkled. It's purified with blood. It's communicating the penalties for breaking the covenant. The penalty for breaking the covenant is death. It's blood. And what did the people say when Moses came and down and told the people all the words of the Lord that Corey read? This is what Corey read earlier in Exodus 24. What did the people say? And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Everything he has spoken, we will do. And did they? No. No, they, they didn't. This is, this is why... We read in verse 15, since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Under the first covenant, transgressions were committed. They violated the covenant. Everyone violated the Mosaic covenant. And who died and took the penalties for those violations? Everyone who's been in Sunday school, said Jesus, right? Jesus died and took the penalties for that covenant. But, what, but the question we get asked is, what does that have to do with us? What does it have to do with us? We are not Jews. We are not under the Mosaic covenant. This is not our family. Look back at the end of verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Death is required for sin. And the Bible doesn't begin with Israel at Mount Sinai. It doesn't begin with Abraham in Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis 12. The Bible begins in the garden where God makes a covenant with Adam. And what does he say to Adam in Genesis 2? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Without the forgiveness, or without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The law that God gave Moses at, at Mount Sinai, it, it ultimately did nothing to reinstitute God's, uh, the, the relationship humanity has with God. It ultimately only proved to demonstrate the depth of human sinfulness. That's what came out of the Sinai Covenant. No one gets right with God through the Sinai Covenant. But the good news is, not only does Jesus take the penalties of the Sinai Covenant, not only did he die in the place of the Sinai Covenant breakers, Jesus took the penalties for human sinfulness that stretch all the way back to Adam. He shed his blood. He offered himself as a sacrifice so that you, whether Jew or Gentile, could have forgiveness of sins. Sin deserves death. We, this is not a popular message. This is not something that's exciting to hear. This is not a way to build a big, huge following. But sin deserves death. 
Every day that we have is grace. It's, it's mercy extended to us. Because sin deserves death. We haven't just made mistakes. You haven't just kind of messed up a little. You haven't made some kind of error that can be solved with an apology. You can't just go pay a fine to make this right. You can't do some volunteer service. You, you can't do some spiritual growth exercises and make this right. You have sinned against the God who is infinite, eternal, and almighty, and the death that we witness all around us Every day, even, even though we try to shut it out as far as we can in our current society today, the death that is taking place all around us every day, wherever you find people, it is a sign that sin is atrociously wicked to God and, and, and the penalty for sin is death. This is a big deal. This is a stop everything you're doing and listen deal. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins because sin deserves death. And the animal blood in the Old Testament is not enough to clear our consciences. But the good news, it's put so succinctly in Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, Born of woman, that stretches us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the promise that, that a seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, that stretches us, that gets us to Sinai and the law, to what? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And what do sons receive? What do sons receive? Sons receive an inheritance. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. What, what is the greatest inheritance you can imagine? What is the greatest inheritance you could come to possess on earth? I mean, it's something like probably Bill Gates's fortune, right? Something like 106 billion dollars. I'm sure that's old, like changes by the minute, right? I mean, can you think of a better inheritance? And even if he were to, to designate all that to you right now, you can still die in your sins and take none of it with you. None of it. And yet, that hypothetical situation, which is just uh, not even helpful to think about, <clears throat> but, it's only, it, but it is helpful in this way. How many of us live for inheritances that are so much less than that? Even if you could get the best in, earthly inheritance, you would have it for a short time and die and take none of it with you. And yet how, much, how many of us live for inheritance that are, that are so much less We live for people's praise. We live for a vacation. Just fill in the blank with, oh, I would do anything if I could just have 
whatever that is right now, lunch. If I could just have this, if this, this would just change, or if this person would just do this, if my wife would just do this, if my kids would just do this. <clears throat> You're looking for a kind of inheritance. You're looking for something that would just make things nice, but ask yourself, what, what inheritance? What inheritance are you building your life around? If you know you have an inheritance coming, it changes how you live your life. I mean, it does. You know you have an inheritance. Ask yourself, what inheritance am I looking forward to? Who does it come from? How long does it last? How much of my life do I dedicate to it? And coming back to the, coming back to the blood, for those those of us who struggle with assurance. And almost everyone struggles with assurance at, at some point. If you're someone who struggles with insurance, assurance, the blood of Jesus should be one of the greatest comforts to you. If you struggle with assurance, do you, do you, do you think about the blood of Jesus very often? Why should you think about the blood of Jesus? Well, I mean, it can be helpful to, if you struggle with assurance, to think about your own spiritual fruit. That can be, that can, that, that plays a role in, in giving us assurance. There seems to be growth in my life, but, but that will never give you full assurance. At the end of the day, you will never have enough fruit to fully assure you. God requires perfection. We all know this intuitively. God requires perfection, and, and we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So when you're tempted to doubt your salvation. What should you do? You turn away from your sin. You don't leave your sin there, but you take your sin and you bring it to Christ. And you remember his blood. In one sense, you turn to his blood. Look at up at verse 12, Hebrews 9. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of vile persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the person or sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How valuable is Christ's blood? The answer is it's infinitely valuable. This is the blood of the eternal, infinite Son of God that he offered through the eternal Spirit so that we might have an eternal inheritance. He secured for us an eternal redemption. This is why we sing of the blood. We're not just morbid people. Even the, some of the songs that we sang already this morning, this this is, this is not to be gross. This is because there's glory in the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thy works, not mine. Thy works, including the blood he shed for us. Thy works, not mine. O Christ, speak gladness to my soul. 
They tell me all is done. His blood tells you all is done. They bid my fear depart. Our fear departs when we see the blood. Not because God loves blood. Not because God is just blood thirsty. It's because the blood of Christ is infinitely valuable. And the blood points to the death that we all deserve. That God promised we deserved all the way back in Genesis 2. God doesn't need blood, but there needs to be satisfaction for sin. Justice demands satisfaction. So when you're struggling with assurance, remember blood. Remember the blood of the eternal, infinite, and then incarnate Son of God. Every time we take communion, what what, what, what does Jesus say when he institutes the Lord's Supper? This is the new covenant in my blood. Another reason why the more we do communion is meant to draw us and, 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 and put in our minds and even in our mouths what God has done for us in Christ. It is through the blood of Christ, the Son of God, it's only because of the blood that we are adopted as children of God. You're not, a, you're not a child of God just because you're, you're not a child of God because you've earned it in, in some way. You're a child of God because of the infinitely valuable blood of the Son of God. Love how Paul puts it in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He suffered, he shed his blood, and then he was glorified, which we can expect the same in him. So are you trusting in his blood? Are you trusting in his sacrificial work in your place? Are you a member of the new covenant ratified in blood? 